Well, we uh, enter into Advent season hot on the heels of Thanksgiving. We've hardly had a chance to digest and we shift gears and holidays. Uh, I turned on my radio on Friday and they were playing Christmas music. So it begins. It is a time, a season of preparation, of, of waiting and preparation, but mostly of preparation, which is what I want to talk about this morning as we begin to uh, spend some time walking through the Christmas stories as they are given to us in the Scripture. So we are this morning in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 17, the story of Zechariah and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, hear the Word of God. In the days of Herod, who was king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were advanced in years. And now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, And his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, before Yahweh. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And He will go before Him in the Spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we have gathered this morning to You and to Your Word. We have gathered to give our hearts in worship and to sit at Your feet and to learn from You. Father, as we open Your Word, as we spend time here, we want to hear from You. We want You to speak into our lives in a fresh way. That You would capture our hearts afresh and turn us to You in the fullness of heart. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Luke quotes from the book of Malachi when he speaks of the one who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He speaks of a prophecy, that turning of the hearts of their fathers to their children from the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book and the last prophet of the Old Testament. He closes things out in the Old Testament. He's the last lamenting voice heard as he speaks to the sins of God's people and calls for repentance. At the closing of that era, the last of the old prophets, before 400 years, 
of terrible prophetic silence comes. Malachi speaks. His Word is recorded as Scripture. As the Word of God. And then not again for 400 years. A silence falls over the nation and over the people. A famine for hearing the Word of God. The Word of the Lord. Malachi, when he closes out the Old Testament, he speaks of of all the things that are going on in the life of Israel and the life of His people that has brought great pain to God and displeasure. The priesthood was corrupt. Their worship had become routine and empty. Divorce was prevalent. Social justice was being ignored. Tithing was being neglected. God was feeling robbed. And God's judgment was falling as the Old Testament expression of the covenant was coming to an end. And as He speaks and silence falls and the waiting begins. One commentator says that Malachi is the last note of that magnificent oratorio of Revelation whose wailings of sorrow and breathings of hope were soon to give place to that richer song, to the song of the Lamb, to the New Testament, to the coming of Christ and the coming of Messiah. And so Malachi ends with prophecies that that both are prophecies against an indictment against Israel, that speaking of God against His judgment on all these things that have corrupted His people in their worship as a whole. But in the midst of this voice, there is that note of hope. Malachi ends speaking of a great and awesome day when Yahweh Himself would come to His temple. A day when the Lord would return. But He would come in power. He would send forth the prophet Elijah first to prepare His way. And so just a couple of those verses from Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send My messenger, and he will prepare the way before Me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. God himself creates an anticipation among his people. He himself creates this sense of waiting for his coming, that the day, a great and awesome day. And so the last two verses of the Old Testament, the last two verses of Malachi, verses 5 and 6, he says, Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But instead of destruction, Elijah does come. And so does the Lord come suddenly to His temple, though they knew Him not. They did not recognize Him as He strode among the pillars of Solomon's colonnade. They did not recognize His coming. But as these last words echo and fade at the close of the Old Testament and these years, centuries of silence fall on them and those years turn into decades and those decades turn into centuries and the anticipation builds. Not only His Word is not fulfilled. Not only is the prophecy not fulfilled, but there's no further word. 
There is only a waiting silence. But the silence doesn't last forever. It's like a 400 year dramatic pause like I just gave. If you, if you say something and you're giving way, it's like a long dramatic pause for that last crucial, important word to be spoken. And out of the silence, God does speak. He does address His people. He does come. And so in verse 5, we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and his name, her name was Elizabeth. The Word of God comes during the reign of Herod. And it's an angel. The angel, we're told later on, that is Gabriel. Gabriel speaks and breaks the silence as he speaks to this priest. This obscure priest. From the division of Abijah. Which I've never heard of. Not that I'm familiar with all the divisions of the priesthood. And, but that's, that's sort of part of it. There are 24 different divisions in the priesthood at that time. They all had their own name and they all served in the temple. And they took turns. They each served a week at a time, twice a year, and they would have their own turn that they would be there and and take the duties of the temple. We're told that this priest who was there during his term is married to a woman named Elizabeth. She also has a priestly ancestry. It is a fully priestly family, but we're told in verse 7 that this wife of his, Elizabeth, had no child. That she was barren. We lose the power of those words that they had in their culture. The emptiness, the brokenness, the disappointment in a culture where there was such a value, such a need, such a longing for children. We're told that they were advanced in years. I kind of like the sound of that as I was reading it. There are different ways to say that. You know, but advanced in years. Sounds almost like you've graduated to something, right? That you've now, you know, that you are mature and wise. You've reached that stage. I am advanced in years. What he means is you're not young anymore. And we're told that they're both righteous before God in verse 6. They're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Now, when I read that, some of us would say, you know, is he righteous because he, he keeps the law and so he kept the law perfectly and so he is righteous before the Lord? And what I hear when he says that, I think we all need to hear, is not some sinless perfection in the keeping of God's law. But it's remembering that part of God's law is the law of sacrifice. And then in keeping the law, that, that it's not that they never sinned and fell short of those commandments. It's that as they sincerely sought to keep the commandments and fell short of keeping those commandments, that as a priest, he would know as well or better than anybody else, that there is sacrifice. That there is different ways that we approach God through the offering of a substitute both on on daily and weekly and and, and particular circumstances as well as annually on behalf of the whole people. That when He keeps the law, that means He is sincere in His attempts to live a godly life and sincere in the keeping of the law of sacrifice where His sin is covered and His sincerity renewed in living a life that is pleasing to God. Faithfully trusting in God's grace to forgive because of a sacrifice that is offered. 
the Old Testament closes with the indictment of a corrupt priesthood. A formal and empty worship. The prevalence of divorce. And the New Testament opens with the Word of God coming to this man. To a priest who is faithful to his wife. Even in the pain and the shame of childlessness. That they have come to terms with that and they have lived together before God faithfully and happily. Hearts that are not hardened by their disappointment. Genuinely engaged in the spiritual worship of the church. A true Israelite. A lover of God. Alexander McLaren says that most of the priests who appear in the Gospels are heartless formalists, if not worse. But there were some in whose heart the ancient fire still burned. Right? Zechariah is one such man in whom the ancient fire still burned for God. Still longing for the fulfillment of His promises and faithfully seeking to live that life and know God's grace. And while he is there, this faithful priest serving before the Lord, God breaks his silence. I love the expression that we see in verse 8 when it says that now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. Some of those phrases that for me just say so much. And that I want to be true for us. He was not just at the temple doing his duty, doing his turn. He was not serving in the temple. He was serving before God. Right? In other words, that says something real going on in his own heart and in his own life. It wasn't an empty formality. He wasn't at the temple doing his job. He was serving before Yahweh. And as we gather, I'm thinking as a morning like this, and I'm thinking in the same way how much I long for that to be true for us where we didn't just gather at church. You know, we worshiped at church. But that you today, that I today, literally and knowingly and consciously worshiped before the Lord. That He in a very real way is present. And that we in a very real way are lifted to His presence. That we with a great cloud of witnesses should our eyes be open to see them. We're worshiping before the Lord this morning. A living God. A present God. A God who is seeing your heart and hearing your voice and knowing your worship of Him this morning. Worshiping before God. So Zechariah's division's turn had come to serve in the temple. Zechariah was about the Lord's business in a very heartfelt, genuine way. And Zechariah's serving. He is chosen by Lot. We're told in verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Apparently, there were a lot of priests. And the 24 divisions, even the one division that is chosen to be there for that week and to serve at that time, there were quite a lot of them. And they all don't get to go in and serve incense. There's just too many of them. So they choose by lot who gets to go in to the holy place, to the inner temple, not the holy of holies where the ark is, but into the holy place where the altar of incense and the, and the candelabra and the table of showbread or consecrated bread, that inner place where incense is offered. They would take lot. Who gets to go in there? And to perform this is an honor 
to be chosen to go in. And it's an honor that may come only once in a, in a priest's lifetime. Because it's by lot. You may never get chosen. And it may come very infrequently. So Zechariah is chosen and he, and he is able to go into the altar of incense, the inner ta- temple. The offering of incense happened twice a day. It happened in the morning and the evening and coincided with the morning and evening sacrifice. So that that offering, the renewing of the incense, which represents the prayers of God's people. That even as the sacrifice is being offered, there is a renewal of the prayers of God's people. And this is the priestly representation of that in the presence of God where the incense is lit and it's meant to, be, to burn there unceasingly. And so they renew it at the different times of the day that the, that the smoke... that. The incense would rise continually before the presence of God, even as the prayers of His people. Which is why I think in verse 10, that connection is made, even as He is in there at the altar doing this. In verse 10 it says, while the whole multitude of the people were outside praying, and their prayers are ascending like that incense, even as the sacrifice is being offered for their sins. There is a faithfulness, there is a way that that happens to a faithful heart where the benefits of Christ's atonement come and abide on them. While he's doing all of this, an angel appears. Verse 11. And there appeared to him the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar. You know, I think, you know, we believe in angels. And I try to put myself in a story sometimes as you're thinking about it and to be, what would that be like? You know, say I was at church, you know, and we were worshiping before the Lord and, and an angel would suddenly appear. You know, I don't know that we're prepared for that. I'm not sure what we would do with that. Because we know that he's not prepared. The angel appears to him and it says Zechariah was troubled. When it says he's troubled there, I think what it means, we, you need to hear, I think a better translation would be startled. You know, you ever, you're doing something, you're not paying attention and somebody kind of comes in and you see him, you're like, whoa, dude, you startled me. You know, like I didn't know you were there. Like that's, that's kind of the thing that happens. Usually you turn a corner, you know, and you're like, whoa. Um, but it's, it's another layer, which is why it says it not only troubled him and then fear fell upon him because he didn't, he didn't walk in the back door and he didn't, you know, in, in some way um, approach him. He was just there. And first is that startled, like, well, dude, where'd you come from? And then there's that realization. He didn't turn a corner. He didn't, he didn't see him approaching. He didn't sneak up from behind him. He was there in the temple. Right? Startled him and then terrified him. I think it would be that way for me. I think there would be a, you know, even though I believe and I know I believe these things, but when that thing really happens, which is why I think people startle us, I think when these, the presence of this one who comes from nowhere, he is there. And I think it's that. I think it's not even so much that the angel came, it's that his eyes were open. I think the angel was standing at the altar. I mean, you can, I'm just saying this because I've seen in the Old Testament where, where you know, Elisha's servant, you know, was wondering what are we going to do, what are we going to do, and Elisha says, he, you know, that your eyes need to be open to see the angels that are already here. This vast army already arrayed in fire. That, that there is a spiritual reality and a spiritual presence that in one sense is, is always there. Just as God's presence, I believe, when we're worshiping is, is here. If we were to live more in awareness and conscious 
dependence and worship on the presence that is always there. Our world overlaps, coincides with, touches a spiritual world that is always there. Angels and demons. And a living God. And here, I believe his eyes are open to see the angel that was there waiting for him. Maybe he snuck up on him. I don't know. But his first words are, do not be afraid. That's always an angel's first words, isn't it? In almost any context. Um, why? Because <laughs> it's terrifying. When these supernatural, spiritual, holy beings, one of the things Gabriel's going to say to John, and we may do him in a couple of weeks, in the, in the next section, is, as, as John is expressing his doubt, that Gabriel says to him, I stand in the presence of Yahweh. It's just that statement. Yes, here is a being who now is holy and worships in the presence of God, unmediated in a sense by time and space. And Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. And he announces Elizabeth's pregnancy. You're going to have a son. And he says, your prayers are answered. You're going to have a son. This is awesome news for Zechariah. This is earth-shaking news for Zechariah personally. right? He had given up in many ways, we'll say, given up hope that this is something that has been laid aside. They're advanced in years. And they're going to have a child. This is amazing news for Zechariah to receive. But the angel doesn't linger there. It's almost like it's not about you, Zechariah. This is important to you here. You're going to have a son. And then he moves on. And you're going to call him John. And he begins to speak about his identity and his mission. Who he is and what he will do. Because that's the important thing that Zechariah needs to understand. Yes, you're going to have a son. But the emphasis falls not on them personally. But that God is giving a son not just to Elizabeth and Zechariah, but to the nation of Israel, and in many ways to the whole world. Why? Because we're still talking about him today. Right? We're still taking his name and talking about his mission and who he was. God gave him to far more than Elizabeth and John, uh, Zechariah. I said his name will be John. The word the name John literally means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. And he speaks of the great role that John will play in God's plans which are unfolding. Tells him, verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice. Not just you. Because he's going to be great. He's part of God's plan. God is doing something here. He's going to be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the very womb. Right? When it says you're not, he's not going to drink alcohol, it's to say there's just, it's a Nazarite vow that he has. And when you meet John in the desert and he's wearing camel skin and eating locusts and stuff, like he's under a special thing here. Right? He took a, there's a Nazarite vow that was imposed on him before birth by God. The Nazarite vow in the Old Testament was usually temporary. It was a vow that was taken for a, a, a period of time. It was the giving up or the abstaining from things that were normally enjoyed by God's people. And here it's, he says, alcohol, wine, strong drink, and and the cutting of hair. You know, things that we would normally do and don't have a problem with. But these are things that for a period of time they would give up to perform or to be a part of some 
special thing that God is doing. Here it is imposed by God, and here it is a permanent thing. John, for the rest of his life, serves in camel skins in a prophetic, unique role in the coming of the Lord. And he will have an extraordinary anointing. Fullness of the Spirit. From before he is born. Set apart by God. Prepared in ways that are hard for us to understand. An empowerment for ministry so that when He comes, He will come in the Spirit and the power of Elijah. Of the prophets of old. And Elijah was mighty among the prophets of old. And so we see here the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecies in the, in the birth of this son, the foretelling of his birth. He will go before Yahweh and he will prepare the way. And this is where we begin to make connections to the Christmas story and to Jesus. Because the role of Elijah was to go before Yahweh and is coming to his temple. And we know that Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, comes. Comes to his temple comes to His people. And John makes ready for Yahweh. And he makes ready a people prepared. Verse 16 and 17, we see that ministry. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And He will go before Him in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts. Hearts of fathers back to their children and children back to their fathers to bring healing to families by bringing healing, by first turning the hearts of Israel back to God, to Yahweh. And in doing that, hearts begin to turn back to each other and there is healing because He is a God of reconciliation and healing. There is a turning and a preparing of the hearts of God's people through repentance that prepares for His coming, His advent. Let me make some quick applications of this. Several around prayer and a couple around turning that we find in this text that um, I find very powerful, helpful. Thinking about prayer. Three of them around the first section on prayer. In just verse 13, when the angel comes to Zechariah and tells him that that he is going to have a son and he will name him John. And he says this because your prayer has been heard. So the first thing is simply that. A reminder. That God hears prayer. I think if we believed that more thoroughly, we would pray more consistently, more passionately. The simple fact that God comes and His Word to Zechariah is, I have heard your prayer. Now we don't get that confirmation all the time. It would be nice. There are times I want to know, have you heard me? Are you praying? Lord, you know, is it getting through? You know, we, there, we all, I mean, you've had that thought. Come on now. Right, but that confirmation when God says, and we know that the prayers of the righteous accomplish much. The prayer of a righteous person have great power in its working. Why does it have great power in its working? Because it is heard. Because God hears our prayers. And He calls us to pray. Second is that God answers those prayers though in His own time, right? Uh, he does answer them not according to our plan. I got a plan. 
And I've been praying that the Lord would answer my prayers according to my plan. Here's how I'd like it to go down, Lord. I'd like it to work out like this. I'd like you to work in these people like that. I'd like everything to, you know, I've got a plan and I pray, Lord, Lord, these are the things I long for you to do. This is the way I long for you to do them. And then, and then he doesn't or, or it's when I least expect it. He does do it. Which is in their case exactly what happened. Right? Zechariah and Elizabeth had accepted, I believe that they had accepted God's will that they weren't going to have children. They weren't bitter. He's serving. And it says, it says they are righteous before God and keeping His commandments. I believe they've made peace with God over their barrenness and their childlessness. We know that it's probably they've stopped praying. That they've already bowed the knee to God's sovereignty and they've probably stopped praying for children. I bet they prayed for years and years and they prayed passionately and longingly that God would give them a child. But I believe the time of praying had passed. Why? Because we're told they were both advanced in years. There comes a time where you think it's not even really practical anymore. And they were advanced in years, and so I can't see that they were praying for a child at this point. Plus, in the next section, we'll see Zechariah is so stunned by the message, filled with doubt that it could be true, that it's hard to believe that he's praying and believing that God would do it. So I believe they have come to peace with God, something they prayed for and longed for for years. And in God's timing and even miraculously past the time they thought it could be answered, He answers it. Because God's purposes wait for their own fulfillment. God is doing more than just this. God has bigger plans for us. God's purposes often wait for fulfillment. It doesn't mean they're not heard. It means God has His own plan. And His ways are higher than our ways. And He's not always doing what we think He should. Luke 18, Jesus teaches the disciples that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. And why would they lose heart? Because they're praying and waiting and not seeing that answer. But we're not to lose heart. We're to pray. And finally then, third, as we see not only the reminder that we should be praying and that we should be trusting in God's timing and His own purpose and plan is just that, that God's answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth, it amazes me that His answer to their pain, His answer to their desire is not just about them. It is about them. But it's about more than them. And so often we see things happen in our lives. We pray for things and we see answers and often God answers in ways we didn't expect or does what we didn't expect. And one, sometimes we just have a hard time not, we have a hard time not believing the universe revolves around us. And all we can see is our own pain or disappointment or our own concerns or our own comfort or our own desires. And God is saying, you are part of something so much bigger. And whether it is in something, some pain, some suffering that has come to you, how many stories have you heard of how God had worked in the lives of people all around you? How the answers to our prayers or the lack of the answer to our prayers affect not only us, but, but so many people in our lives and in our sphere. They affect innumerable people. God is doing more than we can ask or imagine. And our prayers and His answers fit into a greater picture. 
Let me just give one or two more then on prayer that we would remember that our prayers are heard and that we are to, ought to pray and not give up because His timing is not ours. And to know that our prayers fit into a greater doing, a greater kingdom, and a greater coming that we should be praying for. He taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And yes, we pray for our daily bread and our needs and concerns, but they're subsumed first under the prayer for that coming kingdom. And what God is doing and what God is doing is this, and, it, and, it, and as the passage winds out into John's ministry, God's purpose and plan is just this, verse 16. To turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. To turn hearts back to God. That is His great mission. That is going to be Jesus' mission. And that is our mission is the turning of hearts, the turning of many back to Yahweh through the preaching of the Gospel. To turn into fully faith. I love this imagery to turn hearts. Uh, there's this imagery of, of facing. That if I'm, you know, you come in and I'm, I, I hear you, and you know, if I just kind of, you know, there's one kind of interaction we have this way, but it's another thing when I turn and I face you. Right? And when we, there is a turning, there's a fullness in turning that is important. It's not sideways. It's not half-hearted. It's not lukewarm. It's not a divided heart. It's not a formal and empty reality kind of sideways toward God. It's the turning of hearts back to God in fullness. To return our hearts to Him and give Him our affection and our love and our obedience in fullness and in truth. There are some here this morning who have never turned their heart to the Lord like this. Never surrendered to God. Never turned fully to acknowledge Him as God and to bow the knee before Him and embrace Him as King. Religion has been a part of your life. Maybe you've gone to church some regularity, especially some of our young people who are here today. We've gone to church all our lives. Our parents have always gone to church. They brought us to church, and then we don't want to disappoint them when we go to church. And there's this whole thing, especially, but even for adults, there's a lot of ways which church can be a part of our lives and religion can be important and still never have fully turned to God. We're still standing sideways to Him. we still got one foot in and one foot out. We still haven't given that full love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And my friends, this is the very heart of the Christian religion. This is the, 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 the true religion versus false religion is the loving of God with the whole heart. This turning of the hearts of the people to Him. This call to turn to God is a call to turn away from other things and from everything. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 describes how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that is the turning. It's a turning away from other things. And I know there's a lot of reasons why people, why we don't, why we prefer to stand sideways. You know, just kind of partway there why we because there are other things. There's this whole world that, and how they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Have you made this turn? Jesus was born 
to live the life that we failed to live and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could turn without fear. That when we turn, there would be grace and mercy. That through faith in Christ, we can fully turn and be fully exposed and be fully accepted. My friends, Advent is a time of preparation for all of us. And as we heard prayed earlier, as this season there's this danger of all the glitter and all the present buying and the shopping and of all the stuff that we do to prepare the meal and being together, there's a failure sometimes to understand that at the heart of it is this call for the turning of our hearts. The call for us to be a people made ready for His coming. Has your heart been made ready? So that when He comes again, and He will come again, when He comes again in power and in glory, to gather His elect from the four corners of the world and the earth and to divide the sheep and the goats, when, when the Lord does come again to His temple, to His church, we, if we are prepared, can welcome Him without fear. We long for His coming. Come, O come, Emmanuel. Because our hearts and our love and our lives are already His through faith in Christ and a turning to Him. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, in whom You have come. You have come to Your temple. You have come to Your people. You have come in power and You have come in glory. You have come with a Gospel that we might turn to You. Father, I pray this morning if there are any among us who have not made that turn, that have not bowed the knee to embrace You as King, as Lord and as Savior, that they would this day embrace You by faith and put their trust and hope in You alone. That we would turn from our idols and that we would serve the true and living God with all of our hearts. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.